It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1960 film Spartacus. Here we are, continuing our Kubrick retrospective, finally entering the 60s with Spartacus, the one that people kind of squint at when it comes to the Kubrick uh, filmography, the one that doesn't seem to fit in a lot of people's minds. Well, that's for sure. Including Kubrick himself, who definitely does not look at this as one of his uh, crowning achievements. But uh, when did you see this one? This was later in my quest of once I've spoken about it before how I finally decided I'm going through all his his entire catalog. And I want to say this was near the end of my quest. Uh, this might have been my penultimate, because I'm pretty sure Barry Lyndon was my last uh, in the quest. I may have seen this just before that, something like that. And I was never looking forward to it either. Um, there was that, and there was another issue. It had to do with the production of the discs. Um, infamously, they were going to release uh, a Blu-ray version um, sometime between, it was, I don't know, approximately 2013 or something like that. They were releasing it on Blu-ray for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was about to buy that version. But as soon as it came out, Everybody was talking about how bad and shoddy the picture quality was. Um, and it, it was widely known, if you read the trades, so to speak, as I do, that that it was just not good. And then just barely within a year, year and a half later, they released an updated um, Blu-ray version based on a different scan. The pa- packaging was almost identical, so it was hard to figure out which version you were buying. Mm-hmm. And then everyone said, "Oh, okay, this is the one." The, the 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 remastered version of the Blu-ray was like, "That's the one." Um, and so that added to my delay because I was waiting for that remastered version to release as well. Yeah, I also remember that scandal. Yeah, and this very similar thing happened with the Predator, except they took a while to uh, took a little while longer to replace the the broken disc. No, but the fact that they did it so quickly, it's like they had already been started on it or something. So it, it made me wonder why they released the bad one in the first place um, if the new one was practically on deck. But whatever. Yeah, it could have been some scam. They, they'd already started on the one and realized partway through it wasn't working, but they, they were like, we sunk so much money in it. Let's just release this thing and see what we can recoup as we work on the proper one. 
-hmm. You never know with those uh, distributors. <laughs> uh, but this was the first Kubrick film that I saw. Oh, yeah. Um, I would have seen this probably way too young. Like, maybe, like, six, seven, maybe. And it disturbed me a lot. Like, I, I always loved these big epics from the 60s as a kid. I used to watch Ben-Hur all the time. Well, disturbed you? Why? Uh, the violence. The level of violence is what disturbed me huh. when I was a, a youngster. My parents had this on the... Oh, they had this on the, the double VHS. Mm -hmm. They had a bunch of these epics like that, and I would, I would just cycle through them. And this one, in particular, any any of the scenes with like the gladiators fighting was always just too much for me as uh, you know, like a six-year-old. <laughs> I cannot relate. I, I must have got broken in real quick when I was five to certain rated R films because I, too, around that early mm -hmm. age, I didn't see Spartacus, but I did see like Ben-Hur and um, Ten Commandments and whatnot. And those kind of movies, I yep. just watched them just like I watch anything. I, I they never seemed intense or anything. They just just seemed like watching The Wizard of Oz or whatever. Like it just just another movie. Yep, same for me. Yeah, it was it was in particular. There's a scene where uh, the Black Gladiator, can't remember his name, where he's about to uh, spear Kirk Douglas, and then he jumps right. up, Drama. and attacks the, and then they stab him in the back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when they stab him in the back and the blood splurts up to the uh, yeah 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 Crassus's rank at that point. That's when I was a little kid. I just had to look away. That was just way too much for me. <laughs> yeah, that actually got my attention when I was watching it again today. I was like, ooh, I forgot about that because the blood like sprays in his face. Yeah, it's a bit much for a mm -hmm. mainstream American movie in 1960. Yeah, then we see him hanging in the next scene. I remember that too. Always as a kid, just disturbed me. And the Planet of the Apes, too, had a similar kind of element that, as a kid, was always too much. I'd have to look away during those couple uh, scenes. But <laughs> but no, I love this one. I'd, I'd watch this. This is maybe the most of all the Kubrick films that I've seen repeatedly. Because I used to just watch this all the time. But it'd been at least 10 or 15 years since I'd gone back to it. When I finally picked up this 4K disc and, and watched it today. But it was funny, um, with these kind of movies that you've seen so much... It's like, maybe you can't remember the exact lines, but you remember, like, the inflection that they put on the line. Mm -hmm. So just someone will say something, and it's like, oh, yeah, that I remember that, like, just exactly in my memory from watching this so many times as a kid. So it was really cool coming back to it. And it was also immediately apparent the scenes that were added back in. I was like, oh, that wasn't there before. So that was cool. Yeah, I definitely don't have any nostalgic memories, because, yeah, I saw it for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Circa 2015, 2016, something like that. So, nope. And I have to say, even when I did finally watch it the first time, uh, it was a bit of a struggle. I knew it was going to be a more, quote-unquote, mainstream, mainstream kind of movie. But I was hoping I would still feel more of the Kubrick authorship despite it being mm. mainstream and you have to like in a way even though it's completely different in a way it's almost like um oh god what was the first thing called? i was gonna call it edge of destruction um oh fear and desire fear and desire um <laughs> in a way it's almost like fear and desire where you have to like you have to squeeze it as hard as possible to extract the little bit of Kubrickness out of it 
Um, that's almost yeah. like how I feel about this movie. There's, there's little things here and there that I go, oh, that's a little bit Kubrickian, but they are few and far between. Other than just the precision in general. But yes, obviously his style is more than just precision. It is, it's kind of funny that... I didn't realize this until today, but like the opening scenes when they're in the mines or I don't know what they're doing, but uh, excavating. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these opening shots, I mean, they're gorgeous, first of all. But secondly, they are yeah. a little bit reminiscent of the prehistoric man or ape stuff in 2001. But then I just learned today how Kubrick didn't even shoot these. These are the scenes that he didn't shoot for the movie. So that's yeah. <laughs> bizarre, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that's another interesting story. Um, I think I mentioned to you previously in one of these that I listened to the book, I Am Spartacus, the making of, of this this movie. I listened to that probably around like 2015, 2016, and I decided to go back and re-listen to it last week, the, the five and a half hours. And it's such a great book. Highly, highly recommend it. Uh, but he did detail the like why they ended up firing their director three weeks into shooting and, and how they brought on Kubrick. So that's a very interesting book. And I'll probably mention a few tidbits here or there from it. By all means. But, but one of Kubrick's first things when he came on for the three weeks is fire the lead actress that they had playing. Um, uh, well, how do you say her name again? Um, starts with a V. Yeah. Verinia? Verinia, there you go. Yeah, and it's a pretty, it was like his first day on. They were like, okay, Kubrick, you're the guy here. And he's like, oh, I'm watching these rushes. Your lead actress, she's terrible. Let me fire her. And they're like, oh, you can't come on and fire her. We already shot for three weeks with her. And he was like, oh, she's got no emotional range. She's out. And he's like, I'll prove it to you that she has no emotional range and I'll, with a little bet. And if I win, you can pay me an extra week of wages. If I lose, you can take an extra week of wages and you can keep her. But his experiment was he was going to bring her in and pretend to fire her. And if she didn't react, then they would fire her for real. And Kirk Douglas thought that was a terribly cruel trick. But he was like, I guess I have to trust you as a director since I just brought you on this, your first decision. And so he allowed him to do it. And when he fired her, she had no reaction. So Kubrick got to fire her. But then she ran to the bathroom and started bawling. And he's like, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. You can take care of her. And she just left like that. And he was like, that was Kubrick on the set. Like, he was, he had, like, no emotion or care about the actors. He was just this very cold, very precise man. And it worked great for the movie in a lot of ways, but it made it awkward on the, the filming. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of soured their relationship to some degree. <laughs> I like that yeah. story. Um, I heard that they sent her home with uh, $3,000 after they fired her. But I did not know all the rest of the story. Yeah, lots of lots of funny little tidbits. Oh, but with these uh, kind of big epics like this in general, are these movies that really come into your, your film diet? Or do you have to have kind of a purpose to seek them out or, or sit down and watch one? They do not come nowadays. Um, mm. I grew up with them because I only grew up with free American television. And these kind of movies, <laughs> you'd see a few every year. But this is not one that made the rounds on free television. So therefore, I never saw it. So I always saw these other ones. Um, so this is just a big blind spot that I've always had. Um, well, this, and, uh, and I don't know if it fits into this category, but the other big one, famously, I always have missed, which will be probably resolved this year, is uh, Lawrence of Arabia. So, hmm. uh, But no, I don't usually, or 
I haven't in years ever sought out this type of movie. Like classic epics. For ages, um, yeah, I had never seen Gone with the Wind all the way through. Uh, and I finally did on the Best Picture oh, wow. podcast. Finally watched it all the way through for the first time. I actually really liked it too. But as much as I like Gone with the Wind and have a respect for Ben-Hur and Ten Commandments, I don't feel compelled to rewatch them like frequently or regularly. Mm. Yeah. When I was a little kid, it was like I had all the time in the world. So sitting down and investing in these kind of movies, it just came so easy. But now, the I mean, this is three hours and 20 minutes long. I mean, phew, that is a, a big investment for sitting down and watching. It is. It is. And also, actually, I did enjoy them more when I was a kid. Uh, when I was a kid, when you saw this kind of movie, I always considered them like historical documents. Um, when I was a kid, I used to think that when you saw a historical movie, um, I always thought that, that they made them as exact as they possibly could to history. I don't, I don't, I just assumed that for some dumb reason. So I always took it as like, I'm studying real history. Like whenever watching this type of movie when I was younger. Yeah. I think I felt the same way, especially with the biblical epics, because I was raised in a very Christian household. Mm-hmm. It's like the Ten Commandments is hold up. Oh yeah, this is the real account, you know that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I, I do love these movies. I wish that they weren't so long, so I can invest more time into them, watch them more frequently. Uh, but even still, at the three hours and twenty minutes, it didn't feel long necessarily. I mean, obviously it was long, but it wasn't like a slog where I was sitting there like looking at my watch, like when's it going to end? I think the pacing varies during the movie it actually starts off Mm. remarkably quick in my opinion because i can't help but a little bit compare it to gladiator from the year 2000 um because there are obviously a lot of similarities and with gladiator even though it's only two hours and i don't know how long it is but it's more than two hour range overall whenever i watch gladiator i used to like to rewatch it a lot It, it was one of those it was one of those dvds that was like big time repeat playing. Um, and whenever I'd rewatch that movie, you, you just like, Oh, will they get to the first gladiator fight? Will they get to the first gladiator fight? And it feels like it takes forever, but this gets to it right. Like a lot quicker. Um, and I'm surprised actually how quickly it goes from the very beginning of the movie to them rebelling. That's actually surprisingly fast um, in, in movie mm. runtime, in my opinion. Um, because also I'm reminded of the Spartacus television show, which I was also a big fan of, even though I only ever really watched the first season and part of the prequel second season. Um, but in that movie, I mean show, obviously similar s- storyline, it takes the whole season... Um, and even then, I don't think, I can't remember if they rebel at the end of the first season or if it's just like everything's in place for them to rebel. But my point is you spend that whole 10 episodes or whatever it is just getting to that. So it's remarkable that here it Mm. only takes like 24 minutes. I don't know what it is. And they've already rebelled. (laughs) 
Oh, that's interesting. I, I forgot all about that show. I always meant to watch that, but I never got around to it. I was a big fan. But I do think the story of Spartacus would make a good ongoing series. One of these days, I'm going to go back and finish it. Uh, I was really pleased with it at the time. I thought the writing was amazing um, back then. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of the writing for this, I mean, I guess one of the big aspects of this movie is all about the Hollywood Blacklist. Uh, do you know much about those connections to this? I did not realize that. I didn't know that until doing research for this conversation. I was unaware of all that backstory. Yeah, in fact, the book, I Am Spartacus, has a subtitle. Uh, it's called, I think it's, I Am Spartacus and the Breaking of the Hollywood Blacklist. I think it's what it's called. And that's, yeah, it's a huge section of the first part of the book. It's just about all the hurdles of production that came from the fact that, one, they were, it was based off of a book whose writer was on the blacklist. You know, I had to self-publish because the FBI, when he, when he went to a publishing house to try to get it published... They're all happy with it. They're like, oh, yeah, we're going to go ahead with this. The next day, the FBI shows up and says, hey, you, you ain't working with anyone who was on the blacklist. So they had problems with that. They had to, like, hide the author and try to be like, oh, don't worry about him. He's not going to have anything to do with the production, even though they had him writing the script. And then when he finally turned in his script and it was terrible, they worked with another blacklisted writer, Dalton Trumbo. And for the longest time, they were pretending that he wasn't on it, that they had someone else. He was working under this pen name. And that caused all sorts of disasters, too, once it was kind of finally revealed who was writing it. So, a yeah, big part of the movie. Yeah, and that's another movie I need to watch, by the way, Trumbo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've not seen that either. I heard a lot of good things, but never got around to watching it. But, not that I want to open another wound, but um, without getting all into it, I do think about, I don't, I'm not an expert on the Blacklist business. I only know a little bit about it. Um, I mean, even prior to realizing that this movie had connections to it. But but just thinking of the blacklist in general and what it was and what caused it and how it affected things. I do think about that blacklist when you think about people who get canceled nowadays um, from Hollywood or whatever. Um, and the one that, che- that chiefly comes to my mind in modern times is always the Gina Carano thing because I'm... Anything that reminds me of that makes me bitter um, without getting too much into it. I, I just think it's it's so wrong. It's so wrong. And it's ironic. Um, the people that were pro um, disbanding the blacklist or, or abolishing it um, ideologically would be the kind of people who would probably nowadays in modern times uh, be canceling uh, Gina Carano. Yeah, it's hard for hard for me to say. I don't know, but it was interesting reading because uh, he, uh, Kirk Douglas, who, who by the way when he wrote that book was ninety five years old, and when he read the audio book, I think he was ninety six. Couldn't tell. He sounded the same as he did, like twenty thirty years earlier. It's crazy how clear his uh, mind was at that Oof. age. On the disc, on the disc, there's an interview that he did, and it doesn't say when he did it, but it was. It has to be. 2015 or post 2015 and in that interview he is very difficult to understand um Mm. without the uh without the subtitles that are provided yeah i guess at that age i mean he wrote the book in 2012 so three years 98 
yeah, I'm sure that makes a difference when you get, when you get up there like that. But he was detailing a lot of people that were affected by the blacklist and friends and people who committed suicide. And um, the author, when he was in prison, he latched onto the story of Spartacus because he was thinking of a fruit, like a man who didn't do anything wrong and had to try to start a revolution. So him, him writing the book itself was a comment on the injustice of the blacklist at the time. So it really, yeah, it was a huge influence on us. Yeah, now that I learned about it and what it had to do with this movie in particular... Um, it is really interesting how it was trying to say something about that and it was also trying to say something about the civil rights movement obviously just before the actual civil rights movement mm. but according to the special features unless they're unless these people are misguiding me with their testimonies um, mm. that was something in their mind as well um, with all this slavery talk and and, mm-hmm. and all the little soliloquies in the movie when Spartacus is talking about one day, you know, this will, you know, this will be a thing of the past. It'll be abolished or whatever. Um, apparently that was part of it too, which, mm-hmm. which I wasn't really sure about. I was, I was kind of thinking about that myself before I dove into the special features included. Yeah, that was definitely on Dalton Trumbo's mind when he was writing it. He was in his way, kind of a leftist revolutionary and once it did come out that he was on writing it, the studio got super freaked out and they waited until the they had a complete edit and then they went through and tried to strip it bare as much as they could of any sort of success in Spartacus's campaign. So there was all sorts of, like we would see lots of triumphs, we'd see maps of like all the cities that they conquered and they went, they went in and just cut all that stuff out because they're like, we don't want to show that leftist revolutionaries can get anywhere. We don't want our studio to be putting that out. We're already kind of... Uh, ostracized studio universal because when they're shopping this around kirk douglas he was trying to find a studio that would take it but all of them were like we're not working with anyone who wants to publish a book by howard fast he's on the blacklist and eventually had to go to universal which was kind of treated as this cheap b-movie studio and they were the only ones who were like hey we're desperate for something we have kirk douglas we'll take it so (laughs) but honestly it's weird to think how the political motivations of the time no no yeah but but that I, I could see it, even though I obviously never experienced that era, only through other movies and television. I can really see how a lot of the core values of this story or this movie is very anti, uh, anti-towing the line. Um, mm-hmm. And especially 1960, like that early Cold War period because that because you know there's little there's like subtle subtle not subtle things that are hinting towards like there's a lot of comparisons that you can see that they're clearly drawing between the roman empire and the united states and mm-hmm. yeah man that is uh, uh those them is fighting words and i can totally see that in the 1960s context yeah 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 no and especially because it's like a glorification of, uh, like the Che Guevara character. I mean, the real historical character, mm-hmm. but you know, like a glorifying of that type of person. You know, uh, yeah, I can definitely see how that's problematic in 1960. However, that being said, you're reminding me of some other thoughts I had this time around watching it. That's on the same subject in a way, tangentially, because as I was just taking in some of the visuals. 
of the movie early on, coupled with the score. Um, the score throughout, I think, well, it's pretty good. But mm-hmm. the other thought yeah. I get from the score is it frequently reminds me of two different things. Um, the romance theme that we hear over and over and over again reminds me, it sounds like a random romance theme um, from a, a TOS episode of Star Trek. <laughs> I can it see sounds that. very, very 60s Star Trek soundtrack. So there's that thought. But then there's other bits of the score, um, especially during some of the slow, quiet moments early in the movie. Um, not the epic times, the slow times, where it sounds like the score during the slow times of uh, A New Hope, especially on Tatooine. Um, mm. And so it sounds very Star Wars, but particularly the slow times in uh, episode four. And so my brain was constantly being pushed into thinking about TOS, thinking about New Hope, TOS, New Hope, TOS, New Hope. And so then while that was happening because of the music and then thinking about what we were just talking about, about how the movie is a bit of a comment on the political landscape at the time um, and mm-hmm. and how people could consider that kind of... Um, Glorifying rebellions as problematic, um, it really started associating again Star Wars A New Hope with me. And and I've always thought about that. And other people have wrought, written think pieces about it too. It's not like I'm the only person who had the idea. But about how Star Wars, how it focuses on our protagonists being the rebels. It is similar to like glorifying Che Guevara. Um, and that pretend Star Wars A New Hope or the original trilogy was based upon true events that actually happened. Let's just pretend. And this is like a dramatization of like a true story. You know, if you met the real rebels that the movie's based upon, that they're all a bunch of effing douchebags. Like... Or would have so many annoying and bad qualities that they just would they wouldn't include it in the story or in the movie dramatized version of retelling the story. Do you know what I mean? I can I can somewhat understand where maybe you're going there. I mean, they are you know people. I'm kind of I'm basically saying like how people romanticize Che Guevara, but the more you research about the real person, the more you found he's a douchebag, and that's basically what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like if we could somehow look into the like. Like, if Han Solo was a real person and you, like, read a biography on him, you discover that he had all kinds of, like, he probably was involved in human trafficking, like, people against their will, like, when he was young. He probably had some relationships with underage girls that we don't talk about. Um, I'm not really trying to make a joke. I mean, I'm sort of trying to make a realistic thought experiment. That's how the real Han Solo would be if he was, like, a real person. Even just to go to the stuff we know, I mean, the drug smuggling. I mean, you never know what you got to get into to kind of deal in that regard. Maybe you got to take some exactly. people out. That's what I'm saying. That's ex- yeah. That is what I'm saying. That is what I'm saying. And I'm sure you'd look into his real past and discover that him and Lando, like, legitimately stole things from people. 
by legitimately swindling them and conning them like all kinds of stuff if you treat it like it was real i mean think about this movie i mean they're a complete insurgent group they're going around sacking these cities i mean obviously the people that they're sacking are getting a really rough end of the stick when the angry slaves finally arrive sometimes it takes kind of the dark a darkness to come out of people to fight against a dark empire so it's understandable but and maybe you don't want to know them <laughs> yeah and you can imagine there would have been some slaves too who were like yes true being a slave sucks but i don't want to destroy the the roman empire you know there's probably like some empire enthusiasts we can't focus on them because it wouldn't work for the movie but you know just like how if the empire was actually real again in the real life um version of star wars there'd be a lot of people who'd be pro-empire and be like man like we needed this mm -hmm. order like everything was way too chaotic under the republic or whatever um this, this is a weird conversation but yeah okay <laughs> it is <laughs> especially in context of this where it's slaves rebelling against their masters and we do get i mean we don't get too much time. well yeah i really took it as that though yeah 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 i mean i think that's the, that's the point but. well i'm sorry the last thing on star wars though well for now is that given the arc of anakin skywalker I'm surprised that once he became more prominent in the Force and everything, that he didn't become like a Spartacus-like character and like go on like some quest to free the slaves or something. Um, but whatever. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they do a good job early on because we don't get too many scenes of Spartacus as a slave. But just seeing that kind of the training camp that they're in, and then we see these uh, when that that group of four people arrive coming to the slave camp be like oh you know one of us is getting married and we want to have a nice spectacle it's like a celebration so we're going to pick out two of your slaves and make them fight to the death and he even uh uh peter yusinov's character he's like oh you know that's gonna be bad for our morale i really don't think that's acceptable doing a fighting school like i don't want to do it but of course once they pay him enough money he's like oh absolutely you can do it absolutely <laughs> however i thought it was a minor plot hole not plot hole but because a thought I had watching it today was, like, he would have been smarter than that. Um, Batiatis? Ustinov? In other words, I think even before they even asked to have the guys fight to the death, or whatever, his gladiators, um, when he put them all up there for them to choose from, by default, he would have kept, like, his six best guys, like, locked up somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm. To not even chance yeah. losing like your prize um, fighter or whatever. That's like a minor mm -hmm. plot hole to me because it would make no sense um, to risk your good stuff for just somebody coming by. You know what I mean? I was looking at it as if it was livestock and like, here, we want to come to your ranch and maybe try some of your best beef, you know? Like you would hide away like your um, your prize steeds and uh, and cows for someone just passing through, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, no, I can definitely see that. I mean, to be honest, the Peter Yusinov character it does seem a little bit dopey. Like he seems like he was just kind of handed this job, and maybe he's not the most responsible of people. So. <laughs> But by the way, I do love Peter Yusnoff in this. He's one of my favorite of the performers. 
I think he's just super fun. His character is quite entertaining in the Spartacus series. And in the Spartacus series, mm. I don't know who the actor is, but he very much looks and reminds me of Peter Capaldi. And he's very much like Peter Capaldi mm. in that other series he's known for. The political series? Oh, uh, yeah, what is that one called? The something of it. The thick of it. The thick of it. But you know what, you know what his character is like in that series? Mm-hmm. So take that character, and he is like Batiatus in the in the Spartacus series, and he's he's got a real sharp tongue too, uh, and he's always angry, and he looks like Peter Capaldi, and yeah, it, he's like one of the standout characters, <laughs> and he's in love with Xena the War Pr- Princess. That's like his wife or whatever. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, but um, the scene when those four uh, four noblemen come, and the women they're they're just so gross about it they're like oh you know we, we don't want them to suffer so make them wear as little clothing as they can and they're picking out who they think's the hottest just so they can watch them kill each yes. other it's so yes. twisted <laughs> it is but again it really makes me despise them you know i've been on a uh, i was on a downson abbey binge recently and obviously i was mm-hmm. having all the same vibes of like oh yeah man the, the aristocracy versus the the service cast I was thinking about that throughout the movie, uh, especially because I watched Gilded Age as well. So that was kind of fun because mm. these are like the, it's the same trope of the Lord and Ladies living in their ivory tower. Yeah, I, I just think it's a good they do a good job, even though we get very little time of Spartacus actually as a slave, really il- illustrating how demeaning and gross that that life is, and really makes you uh, completely on their side as they're going through and just ransacking town after town. And every now and again, we'll see they like have them all lined up, marching through, and slaves will be like attacking them, just in fury at their their masters. <laughs> Goddamn! I don't want to derail the flow of the conversation, but uh, what source did you watch to like now recently? I watched my my 4K disc. Oh, okay. I didn't. I wasn't sure if that's what you watched because I watched the same, and this is my first time watching the 4K disc all the way through. This is me too. This is one of the best. Uh, th- this is this is one of the best of um, classic films released on 4K. This is it's amazing. It is really amazing. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah, and I know not everyone listening is like as much as an audio video file as I am. Like people think, oh, it's just perfectly sharp or whatever, or you know, clear, like devoid of scratches and imperfections. While it is that, mm. that is not what I'm marveling at. I mean, that's part of it, but I'm marveling at the um, the color grade and the way the HDR makes mm. it. God, it looks, it is gorgeous. Gorge. I'm very surprised that um, Gone with the Wind has not yet been released like in 4K like this. Because mm. it's just incredible. It is so incredible. It is so vibrant. And it's amazing how sumptuous it makes the movie look because when I watch the special features and you see like the deleted scenes or you watch the movie trailer, that stuff is obviously unrestored and or taken from a horrible source, especially some of the promotional footage was the um, like like black black and white copies. And it's amazing how Mm. cheap and shoddy 
the same exact movie actors and acting looks when you see like the horrible black and white. Like you almost think you're watching like um, BBC presents like from the year 1960. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's like watching yeah. um, uh, Hartnell years of Doctor Who in terms of uh, production values. Uh, but anyway, yeah, this is one of the the best classic restorations out there. It is so worth it. I can't believe I got it for like 15 bucks or something uh, last fall. <laughs> yeah, and again, I've seen this so many times on VHS. This is the first time seeing it in HD for me. And yeah, it was a revelation just how amazing it could look. Just There's that epic scene um, near the end when the two armies are meeting each other and they're doing like some group formations like walking around all in like unison and just that was always kind of a blur on my my vhs but now it just looks absolutely stunning i was just like wow wow yeah and also i don't know if your vhs um back in the day was cropped for four by three because that's another thing that really ruins the movie and makes it feel like it's a television movie um is when it's in that ratio Oh, I can't remember for sure for that one. I think my parents still have that VHS. I should go back and <laughs> break it out. I'm guessing yes, because they only started releasing VHSs in widescreen um, in the late 90s. And even then, only audiophiles like, bought those. You know what I mean? Like, Usually, mm-hmm. general general public didn't. The only movie that famously, I think it only released in widescreen on VHS... Um, I want to say it was Last of the Mohicans. For some reason, that VHS was hmm. in widescreen, and like that's like the only movie I can think of that was widely available only in that format. Oh, uh, but just because I'm watching the gladiatorial fight right now, mm-hmm. I really like the way that Kubrick handles action in this movie. Like everything is kind of pulled back, and the camera just kind of lets you linger on it. There's not lots of like quick movements or things like that. Well, that's Kubrick right there. Yeah, and it really works excellently. Like the scene when they're kind of first raiding their uh, or freeing themselves from being slaves. I think all that action just just is fantastic on screen. Really, really stands out. I'm trying to think what it was that I saw recently that somebody was praising the filming of the action the same way you just did. Um, it might have been when I was reading reviews on the Northmen um, that people were talking about that they were praising it because mm. it didn't do the stereotypical fast cutting um, during the action scene. So mm-hmm. where you can't tell exactly what someone's doing or what's happening, but they let things linger. I think, yeah, I think that's what it was. The Northmen, especially the part where they, uh, they, um, they take the fort. Yeah. No, absolutely. That was great. Really great. Um, but I also wanted to highlight, you mentioned the the love theme score. I really like that piece of music, and I really like all the romance scenes. I think that stuff's handled really tenderly. And they even like break out the old like Vaseline on the lens, kind of soft focus look, which also feels very Star Trek. But I think the two actors just have such a great sense of chemistry. And I'm really glad that Kubrick fought to recast. <laughs> and also, and this is a little bit of a primer for Lolita as well, but speaking of those love scenes, I think they did as much as they could to make them unique 
and push everything within the bounds of like the haze code mm. yeah and a lot of that stuff the sensors they were all over the dialogue in those scenes oh yeah like his first scene where he's like i never had a woman they were fighting and fighting to get that out of there when he's talking about he wants to explore all of her with the curves they hated all that stuff they wanted it gone <laughs> but but they fought for it because i was thinking and this is what i like about the haze code i know you hate the haze code but i like the creativity that was a result yes. of it and the one scene it might be when they're by the lake maybe i'm not sure but it was at nighttime and they come at each other at opposite direct like she's laying on her back and then he comes at her mm-hmm. from the opposite side and he's on all fours so only their faces are above each other but one's up it's kind of like doing the infamous spider-man mary jane kiss scene um from the original spider-man except mm. it's horizontal instead of vertical uh and it's actually weirdly sensuous like the mm-hmm. spider-man scene and and the way his hands are on her in a weird way it's almost like super sexual um and the fact that they're mm-hmm. like in this weird 69 position except elongated that's weirdly super sensual <laughs> but then at the same time because only their faces are face to face and their bodies are far apart that makes it weirdly safe mm-hmm. in a weird way so it, it's it it it's weirdly safe and sensual at the same time. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and just unique. Because, see, you would yeah. never do that without the Hayes Code. You would just do it traditional, like face-to-face, missionary grinding or something. Um, but this is, like, like the antithesis to that. Well, it could be. I mean, again, the Spider-Man references from the, uh, you know, past that time. But, but of course, that's specific, you know. <laughs> kind of moment yeah. but but in terms of the haze code i'm the the book was filled with venom from kirk douglas about how much he despised the censors and how much he thinks that they crippled art at the time and he 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 went, even went through and dedicated a chapter to the lists of all this like the notes of the censors got and they were doing things like any comments about breastfeeding they wanted to remove from the script because they thought that was too suggestive sure just random bits of dialogue and there's that scene that was actually cut from the movie, the uh, gay inference scene yes. with uh, Laurence Olivier and uh, Tony Curtis. I was about to bring that up because I wrongly told you today that I thought it was added in the 2015, which is the most recent restoration. But I, after I went through the materials, uh, actually it was restored in 1991 because um, that was the mm. first restoration was the 1991 restoration. So that's actually when they brought that scene back. And but anyway, that scene is crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. already the fact that he has like his manservant giving him a bath—that's already one thing. Mm-hmm. But then the actual conversation is crazy, and this is another great primer for Lolita because Lolita is like a whole movie of that, <laughs> <laughs> which is why it's so amazing. Oh, and they all loved it. They said that, that was one of the things that really sold uh, Lawrence Olivier in taking the role. He just he thought that scene was really kind of transgressive and captivating, and they all thought that it was subtle enough that they could get it past the censors. But of course they they were wrong, and it got cut by the studio. Shoot. Um, and it's funny the version that uh, exists now 
because years later they thought that scene was lost. They thought a lot of this stuff that was cut was lost, but they found it. But the audio track didn't work. And so they brought in Tony Curtis as a much older man, and they also brought in Anthony Hopkins to uh, dub over that that dialogue. So, so you can kind of tell if you know that it's Hopkins, you can hear him in there, but I think that's a fun little tidbit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I just, I, I just remember, I forgot, I just um, saw that or read that. Um, I was going to say that, uh, no, the, the part of my body that's able to, or my mind that's able to transport itself to 1960, even though I wasn't alive in 1960, that part of me, when mm-hmm. I was watching that scene earlier today, my hair was on fire. Like, as if I was a citizen of 1960. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, this is way over the top. Like, if I had little Jimmy with me in the movie theater, little five-year-old Jimmy, I would have, like, my finger in his, my fingers in his ears. Like, even though it wouldn't even make sense to him. Oh, man. That, I mean, for, in 1960. It was crazy. Oh, but it's only crazy because crazy people were in charge. That's the... Because, again, Kirk Douglas was talking about all the ways that they tried to please the censors. No, but I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, aside from the film industry, I'm talking about just Jack and Jane living in Pleasantville, USA, just going to the movies. And then if if that scene was there, you would just be like, holy crap. I cannot believe how vulgar this is, is what I'm saying. Ah, but they might, they might not have been there 20 years earlier if it hadn't been like 30 years of conservative, conservatives controlling that stuff. Oh, and again, if you're reading like Dime Store, like. Pulp fiction. No, but that see, would be completely. You'd be like, okay, that's that's normal. Okay, if the Hayes Clothes hadn't existed, then they just would have been directly talking about it. So you know, mm-hmm. how are you? Uh, you dabble in the men. I mean, that's what they would say if there was no Hayes Code. They would just be like straightforward with it. Well, I don't know, Dalton Trumbo. I mean, he seems like he loves the flowery kind of speeches and dialogue. I think he would want to class that kind of thing up. Yeah, that's some wishful thinking. I listen to every every way that he talks in this this movie. <laughs> I mean, he loves his kind of speechifying and kind of giving it. No, this. no, I'm sure he does. But I'm saying it wouldn't have as much of a place if if the Hayes Code never existed and everyone was just used to straightforward dialogue. Oh, he may be into flowery language, but other but other people would just be like, "Uh, what's the point?" You know what I mean? Like because it's because I mean, why do people like Shakespeare? No, I understand that. I understand that. Uh, but I'm just saying, I feel like he would just get completely overlooked, and people would just be like, "Yeah, no, we don't, we don't need that. Just, just do it the regular way." Well, I, I definitely think that's an odd uh, assumption, but, <laughs> but I guess fair enough. Because what? Because even now we have things that are more flowery in their way. Sometimes people who, have, who see some. Uh... Sometimes, but not in a Fast and Furious movie. Yeah, but Dal- I mean, Dalton Trumbo, again, it's like, he was an Oscar-winning Oscar writer. He wasn't writing crap like that. That's what I'm saying. And even this, you know, the, the blockbusters of the time. No, 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 I know. But see, my assumption is based upon that the Trumbos of the world would be doing serious drama, independent film, if it was nowadays. Uh, he wouldn't be doing the mainstream movies um, and putting that type of dialogue in. And that's why I picked Fast and Furious, because that's a mainstream movie nowadays. And see, that's what I'm saying. There's no room for artistic license like that in traditional um, mainstream movies, uh, big budget movies. Yeah, but I think that's more just the general dumbing down of the movie industry. I mean, the big blockbusters of the time back then were these more classy, 
more kind of well-read kind of films and they just appealed to the mass audiences because they were they bring in all these great actors and they would give them a lot of good spectacle but it was like they were classing up the spectacle pieces i agree but after a while it just turned into let's just throw crap and stuff that people are familiar with that really started i think in the 80s in the late 70s you just kind of turn everything around. The reason I think this is a difficult, the reason I think this is a difficult thought experiment, is because if you, you know, waved your magic wand, uh, and and made the Hayes Code never exist, I think that there would be a bunch of unintended consequences on the art, and I think that the ramifications would be bigger than than you're imagining. Because I'm imagining something like the Man in the High Castle or something. Like I'm imagining it would cause like a whole <laughs> ultimate world. Um, because, because it, oh, it, it would be like, it would be like ripples of butterfly wings. Like it's one thing, but it would. Twenty years later, we wouldn't even recognize the movie industry. Um, so, the kinds of movies they would have been making in the 1960s would look, look like movies that were coming out like in the late 70s. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like if if there was no Hayes Code to slow them down um, in their evolution. Well, another thing to think about is. The Hayes Code only exists in the United States. I know both me and you are both big fans of European cinema. Right, right, right. Absolutely. You're and you look at the stuff they're doing there; it didn't didn't hold them back. You know, you're absolutely right. But again, that that's where the troubles would exist, like in the foreign film market, the independent film market, um, not in the mainstream stuff. Uh, in this alternate reality, and of course. Uh, of course, so many people on the blacklist did go to Europe, and that's where they had to work. Um, we've covered already numerous films in this podcast that were just blacklisted writers having to move to Europe and work in horror and that kind of stuff because those are the only jobs they could get. Yeah, makes sense. It makes it all everything makes sense. But yes, yeah, there's even a sad story in the the book "I Am Spartacus." They're talking about Dalton Trumbo. Uh, one year, the year of that uh, Roman holiday. Um, I think won the Oscar for best script or best screenplay, and that same he had a he had some like a friend go up and accept the award for him, because of course he wasn't allowed to go to those kind of things or be credited. But that same night he had another movie that won an Oscar, and no one went up for that. It was just like a ghost. They're like, oh, is this person in the house? No one came, because of course he wasn't allowed to to be there. And he didn't think that that movie was going to win anything, so he didn't send anybody to represent it. He's just sitting at home, and a, a lot of the writing process on this. He kept kind of hammering uh, Kirk Douglas to be like, "Hey, like, can we include more stuff about the blacklist?" and and Kirk Douglas got invited to this event with Richard Nixon, and he kept hammering Douglas to be like, "Can you bring up to Nixon about ending the blacklist? Like, I, I really want to get my life back, my career back." And Kirk Douglas just never got to do it. Right. And eventually, because Peter Ustinov kept, uh, he he just refused to stick on script. He would like rewrite all of his lines. So at a certain point, Trumbo was like, if you're going to have him write his lines and he can write the whole script, I'm quitting. And the only way that they could get him back was to promise that they put his name on the movie instead of his pseudonym. And so that meant, uh, meant a lot to him, and he really invested. Speaking of Usanov for a second, mm. you know, I don't know much about the actor outside of this movie. Um, but in the movie, in the actual movie, he comes a bit of, he comes off, he's a little bit of the comic relief. He's a little bit of adult, a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. but when you see him doing interviews, publicity interviews for the movie, or there's some great, um, behind the scenes footage of just him screwing around on set, but he's in his regular civilian clothes. 
Um, he looks a bit of a playboy. Like, oh yeah, he looks a bit. He he looks like a bit of a cutie, so to speak, um, ladies' man type. Like, I could just see a lot of people, like the kind of person who would catch a lot of people's attention at a party or social gathering. Yeah, like, he doesn't come across as the character who he actually plays in the movie. Yeah, and that's exactly how he was described in the book too. That he he was just it was it was like the gravity around him just pulled people to him. And that's actually why they had to fire the the first director. I don't know if I mentioned this, but during the first three weeks, well, you mentioned he was fired. Yeah, like the director and Peter Yusinov became very close, like companions. They were around each other all the time, and Yusinov was just going crazy. He was just writing his own lines. He was throwing out bits of the script, doing whatever he wanted, even playing it a little bit too campy. And the director just wouldn't do anything. He was like in love with everything that Yusinov would do. And so Kirk Douglas was like, I can't have this guy directing this movie if he's got no control over this actor. So he fired him. That makes sense. But And, and I love all the scenes with uh, him and Charles Lawton. I think the two of them are just so charming on screen. I'm already a big fan of Charles Lawton. And seeing those two together is just like, oh, man, I want a movie of just these two. So charming. Yeah, Charles Lawton is another person who I'm not very familiar with. He has all the presence in mm. the world in the movie. And I could tell... He gives off an aura of or air of he's a great actor, but yet mm-hmm. that's just what I'm getting from his vibe. Even though I don't really know him, um, I don't know his story. I don't know his filmography. Yeah, the guy was a genius back in his day, um, and it was funny. Kirk Douglas said that the only fan letter that he ever sent to an actor was to Charles Lawton when he was a kid, and he was so happy to meet him he was like charles lawton is who i want for this role and he went to meet him and charles lawton was just like the biggest asshole apparently he's like a, a giant drama queen he's always making trouble just so he can be the center of attention so so he caused some problems on this set but it was worth it because he's just great yeah <laughs> it seems like this whole cast is like all british just for me kind of perusing yeah that yeah there's a lot of them yeah that's fair and I, I got the sense that they really wanted to bring in like a like a class act kind of uh, lineup of actors. Well, yeah, of course. And I think they really got some, some good ones together. Yeah, and I guess that's another thing about big blockbusters these days. I don't really feel like they bother with that anymore. It's like they'll be like, okay, I'll get like one actor. No, they don't. Oh, oh. That stuff has really died um, in the last 10 years. Uh, mm. With the rise of the streaming world um it's it's like completely destroyed the budgets of big time movies and that combined with the fact that whoever the marquee names are or who they were like they're Mm -hmm. not guaranteed anymore like as far as bringing the box office so the combination of Mm -hmm. streaming and the big names not necessarily always drawing having the draw that's completely destroyed that and yeah that's what it is. Um, yeah, that's very much happened. Yeah, I hope that I hope that turns around. I mean, watching something like this, going back and uh, knowing a lot of these actors' careers, seeing them all together like this, it, it really just adds a lot to the movie. Just having these really premier performers on screen. Yeah, but just fast forward twenty years, <laughs> and they'd all be showing up in disaster movies. Exactly. <laughs> that's where I was. They'd all be in earthquake and airport. 79 and <laughs> Poseidon Adventure 4. Actually, 
I just had the idea <laughs> in my head. Actually, the only place where you do get a whole bunch of marquee actors together is in the Marvel movies, especially when they do like a you know a big mm-hmm. one like an Avengers or something. That's where you're like, holy shit, who are all these people? Yeah, like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm always impressed with that, <laughs> even if it's just can't like. It's so weird, like, um, like Benedict Cumberbatch, and not that Anson Mount is that big, but still, that like, he was in the movie, and Patrick Stewart, mm-hmm. and uh, Jim from The Office, and that sounds weird too. Uh, Krasinski, yeah. like, like holy shit, these guys are all in the same movie together, even if some of it is a bit like a cameo, or like when Anthony Hopkins, yeah, Bruce Campbell, was like playing yeah. Odin. Oh, Bruce Campbell, um, it's like holy shit, Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> and then Charlize Theron. Like just randomly shows up, like that, that's that's where you see it nowadays. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And I was even thinking something like those uh, the new Praro films, like they try to bring in some some bigger names that try to add some prestige to the movies. So that's that's something. Yeah. I guess even Knives Out kind of did that to some degree too. So yeah. Uh, but where else do we have to go with this with this one here? Let me. At least scroll through my notes a little bit. Well, it's weird. Okay, let me say what I thought of all I had to say before we started this conversation. Because I didn't know what I was going to say. Mm. Uh, other than talk about the picture quality. Uh, this, and I guess Fear and Desire by default, are just the Kubrick movies I am virtually never in a mood to revisit. Um, mm. and just, just not. And... Even though I think there's like so many good things going on in this movie, uh, story-wise, thematically, performances, cinematography, even though it has so many high marks in so many different areas, it's it's just not one of those epics I want to go back and watch and revisit on any regular basis at all. And even though it is a very interesting epic story, it's it just it just doesn't connect with me for some reason. Like, there is... I haven't seen the the Ten Commandments in over a decade. But there's something cool about seeing him free the slaves out of Egypt and lead them out. Like, there's something epic about that. Um, And thinking about it and reflecting on it. Whereas I just feel completely disconnected um, with the actual plight of of these characters, of this... of Spartacus and I... It's just, I don't know how to describe it. I just feel disconnected from it. And again, it doesn't have the things I look for in Kubrick movies in general, which always bring me back to those movies, where I'm always going back Mm -hmm. and looking for something that I missed or some kind of clue or something like that. It just doesn't have any of that. Yeah, no, this was definitely a, a job for Kubrick. I mean, he really focused on getting it right like it wasn't like he was just kind of on the set but not paying attention but it wasn't his vision dictating the story or anything like that so he could only really focus on getting the shots right and things like that And it was funny how they mentioned that they brought on like an oscar award-winning cinematographer they were really excited to work with him he'd been in the business for for ages at that point and he and kubrick did not get along whatsoever he completely disdained him and Kubrick didn't help. He he wore the same outfit every day. He wasn't like people would complain about his hygiene and that he was just rude, didn't give a fuck about anyone thought about him, and openly said that. 
And he told the cinematographer, like, your job is just to supervise now. I'm taking over this. I'm going to be the one taking care of the filming. You can just kind of stand and watch. And then, and then they actually won uh, the Oscar for Best Cinematography. And the guy was, yeah, just not happy about it. <laughs> Didn't I... Wasn't there something similar like this that I brought up during Paths of Glory? Similar situation? Oh, I don't know. Where Kubrick didn't really care for the cinematographer and kind of, and they kind of like did not get along either for similar reasons. I don't know. Something, I feel like that was said uh, in our last episode. But. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised. I don't remember it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Kubrick, I mean, yeah, I mean, he should be his own cinematographer. He shouldn't have someone else there unless they're just yeah. like a yes man. I'm pretty sure if you go back to our last episode on, on Kubrick, yeah, that that Kubrick took over, and and the cinematographer was fairly aghast at, at many of the decisions uh, that were made in Paths of Glory, and he also was like a very respectable um, career guy. Yeah, the way Kirk Douglas describes Kubrick, it's almost like he was an alien. Like he just came on. He didn't relate to other people in any way. He was just so focused on completing his vision and they said um when they first did the screening of the rough cut everyone was aghast it was like when they did the rough cut of the phantom menace immediately (laughs) everyone said everyone's throats panicking and kubrick was just over in the corner muttering muttering to himself about spain and then when they're like well kubrick what are we gonna do the movie's movie's fucked he's like uh give me a couple more million and i'll go and shoot some stuff and we'll sort it out and didn't tell anyone his plan but when he came back it was that big epic battle at the end. They were just all stunned, and they're like, "Oh man, this this is really going to save the picture." I think I read a weird thing about Spain as it pertained to this movie, which was that mm-hmm. <laughs> Kubrick didn't like the idea of the actors actually performing like in the landscape of Spain because he felt like they'd be too distracted by by it, and so that that, that was actually one reason why he did like shooting um most of the acting pieces like studio bound because hmm. he felt like he, he could control the actors more in a studio setting because they'd be less distracted by the scenery um i don't know if that's true but i did read that before <laughs> oh that's interesting yeah and it worked out because because the the studio wanted it all to be shot in the united states but he mm-hmm. wanted to shoot it all in europe but the compromise was that yeah the actors will do that in hollywood and then the location stuff but again that was like the one part that he liked about the arrangement supposedly was because he felt like he could Mm -hmm. direct the actors better in a studio and according to kirk douglas he was actually pretty happy with the movie when they'd finally finished it and completed their rough edit he was like he said that kubrick and everyone was really proud of what they'd done and then it was just once the studio took it and completely edited out all the stuff that didn't meet the censor's uh standards that's when kubrick turned it and he didn't like the movie anymore and he didn't want to ever work on a movie where he didn't have the final edit again right and kirk douglas said he felt the same way when he saw what they'd done to it he didn't watch it again until he wrote the book uh he saw in the theater and was so repulsed by what the censors had done that he just he couldn't look at the movie again the same way so so again, there's there's definitely neg- very negative those kind of people running art. It's just it's just gross, I think. But, but anyway, yeah, but uh, that's what uh, there's so many modern examples of that. Uh, 
of so many movies that were supposedly ruined or or wrecked in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. But usually these days it's more just studio meddling because they want to appeal to the most audiences. Yeah. They're not like, like this movie, even with those edits, like all these like demagogues were going to, were threatening to protest the movie and try to get it canceled because uh, of Dalton Trumbo and its supposed leftist leanings. Yeah, it's crazy that, that the American Legion was trying to block it and protest against it. Well, yeah. it's crazy in retrospect, but again, if I put myself into 1960, then it's not crazy. Oh, I think it's cra- I think it's crazy any decade. Like, it's so gross, these people. Like, what's wrong with like, No, 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 When no, I was no, reading no, the, no. the things that they were trying to censor, it was just so bizarre. Well, I don't know the particulars. But again, going back to the concept of how this movie is ultimately glorifying rebellion um, Mm -hmm. and going against the establishment, um, I imagine to someone who's very conservative in in 1960, in the late 1950s, I would imagine it'd be similar to what's going on nowadays with this, the whole thing about... um, like we don't all we don't want all these we don't want to um, we don't want to be bombarded. This from the conservative's point of view, we don't want to be bombarded with all these like trans messages and everything all the time. And so there was like some major major like like if Avatar two, the new one, mm-hmm. had like this heavy theme of like sci-fi, but it was like pro trans but like intensely like that was like a core element of the movie you could see like conservative groups like trying to block it and protest against it like before it even comes out and that's sort of i I can imagine the conservative types in 1960 looking at this just like that oh but that's that's what i mean like i don't understand it i I can understand if you yourself are like i'm against this art but to protest and try to get it stopped from being released that just is so it's something that I cannot begin to understand. Oh yeah, like would I ever, like even even if that aligned with my beliefs, would I ever know? Because I generally think that when you protest like that, it, it like backfires um, against you. Um, so so even if I held the same beliefs as the um, American Legion back then, even if I was a member of the American Legion and I, and I believe the same as the rest of them. As a tactic? Yeah, no, I don't think it's a good tactic. But I understand the people who think it's a good tactic, uh, even though I think they're it's flawed thinking. Yeah, I think the tactic of censorship... Like, I just couldn't imagine putting myself in a position where I was like, I'm in favor of censorship, and I want to go out in the streets and, demonst- and demonstrate and tell everyone how much I love censorship. Well, that's exactly... That's so alien to me. Well, this is exactly why I'm against the whole... That is exactly why I'm so against the cancel culture now. And that's exactly why I say it's ironic that the people who are trying to free Trumbo, uh, politically speaking, the ancestors of those people are the ones who are trying to cancel things, conservative (laughs) things nowadays. That's what I was getting at. That that doesn't make any sense. It's like the upside down. But I don't think it is the same. It is the same because it's the... But I don't think it's the same because... But they're going after individual people because of things they've done in the past. It's not. Oh no, no, no! You know, you're right. Oh, okay. Yes, if you talk about that, the individual sniping. But they don't just protest. It's not just limited to to individuals, though. You understand that there's entire movies that they don't ever want to be out. Period. Well, again, I I haven't seen too much of that. But if I do see it, I mean, like there was that whole cuties controversy. 
all these people never saw the movie, didn't know anything about it, where they're just automatically like, this movie should be removed from Netflix, should be banned. And I was just like, this is crazy. Like, watch the movie and you'll see that you guys were completely blowing this out of proportion. Like, I just don't get those, those people. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie and I don't know that I ever will, but the, what is it called? 9,000 Mules or whatever? Oh, I don't know if I know this one. The documentary? 9,000 Mules. Let me take a look. Well, it's been making the news for the last however many. It's, it's a very conservative movie because it's made by a super conservative <laughs> guy uh, who... who yeah, Dinesh D'Souza. In the United, <laughs> yes, who everyone, everyone on the left side of things wants to cancel him completely. Um, <laughs> which, again, I understand why they want to cancel him. Uh, I mean, what's, what motivates them. But his documentary <laughs> is currently the highest-grossing documentary of the year. And like I said, I'm not saying I'm even going to ever watch it. But if they had their wish... <laughs> That movie would never play anywhere in the United States. That's insane. Um, those in Hollywood, so to speak. And I, that's, that's I'm against that. I'm against that type of censorship. Whether that movie plays to me or not, I'm, I'm against just like completely wiping it out of existence. But anyway, sorry to derail. But yeah. but you got me really thinking about it because I honestly believe that. Um, like, I understand it in the context, even if I disagree with. But oh, I don't know. I don't think you can find any sort of like I don't think studios are going and they're like okay this is what your, your movie has to include or else we're not going to run it or we're going to make weird cuts. There was some of that in the opposite regard with Disney like the whole completely ridiculous controversy with um was it Beauty and the Beast where they had like a gay coded character and they were so like panicked about people accepting it. So there's been some of that in the other way too that maybe some of the anti-woke crowd forgets. Like all that weird censorship. I'm I'm against all that stuff. Just let artists do what they want to do, and just they should fuck off and let them do whatever they want to do. I don't get all the weird constraints. Oh, but uh, yeah, just coming to I guess we've come to the end of this Spartacus discussion. Uh, so, do you want to? What, what are your final thoughts for this one? Oh, I've kind of already said it. It's a quality movie. It's a great movie. It's a great example of the type of movie it is uh, that it is. It's a great example of traditional golden age Hollywood at the at the tail end of its existence because this is the beginning of the end of the traditional um, Hollywood model and the golden age. Hmm. Uh, it's the epitome of all that. Um, it's the last gasp of it at the same time. And it's kind of ironic that it is made by Kubrick because Kubrick would be part a section of the revolution to come in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a fine, fine movie. It's just, like I said, it's that one of those that I will least watch or rewatch or return to because it's, it is a bit too traditional for my movie tastes. Um, mm. As much as I think it's a great movie. And yeah, and for me, this definitely won't make won't rank very high on my favorite Kubrick films list. It's in a different league than a lot of the stuff that he makes later. But for yeah, this is kind of traditionalist, kind of blockbuster for the time style. I really think this one stands up and, and is rightly recognized as one of the great ones. Um, very well shot throughout. Great performances by the actors for for that kind of performance anyway. Um, really great dialogue throughout. Really love all that stuff. 
and the scope of it. It's just you don't really see movies like this anymore with this like giant a cast of extras. Oh, man. Like when we see all the shots of all the troops and stuff moving, that's some glorious stuff. You just don't see that anymore. Well, again, I mean, well, it's done differently now. But uh, again, Gladiator was the new version of this. I mean, <laughs> not just Spartacus, <laughs> but I mean, big crowd pleasing, broad appeal type movie is what I mean. Yeah. That's what Gladiator was. Yeah, just because you mentioned Gladiator real quick, I, I did want to mention this. So there was a funny little backstory in the production history of this movie. Uh, we mentioned during the Prestige how every now and again Hollywood gets a, like a something stuck in their like their teeth and they want to keep repeating the same thing. Like with Deep Impact and uh, what was the other one? Oh. Uh, they had like the two asteroid movies. Yes. Uh, Armageddon. Armageddon, there you go. <laughs> Volcano, Dante's Peak, Ants, Bugs Life, Prestige, The Illusionist. Right when this movie went to production, there was going to be two Spartacus movies. There was this version, and then United Artists was going to make one called The Gladiators with Yul Brennan. Or Brenner. Is it Brennan? Brenner? I can't remember Yul right Brenner. now. Um, and, yeah, and they were constantly sniping at each other. They would, one, one studio would make a press release, and their studio would make a press release. And they even said they went to uh, um, United Artists, went and copyrighted the name Spartacus, even though they weren't going to use it. Just said this movie couldn't use it. And it wasn't until they went to like their big thing where all the studios at the start of the year announced what their projects are going to be. And back to back, the two of them was like, okay, our movie's about Spartacus. And all the people were laughing and they all had such a great time. And uh, Kirk Douglas went up to the producer and was like, hey, you know, in good spirit, can you let us use the name Spartacus? And they're like, okay, you can use it. But then this movie came in, came out, and United Artists dropped the Gladiators. Like, okay, this is too embarrassing. We can't release these two at the same time. So we never got the Yul Brenner Spartacus movie. Yeah. But um, what I also wanted to mention, uh, just because you were talking about it, the the change was about to happen. Um, this movie also came out the same year as Psycho, and the guy who was playing Caesar, John Gavin, was also in Psycho. I'm surprised I never noticed that. All the times I watched those two movies, I never realized I was that same guy play Sam Loomis. So that was kind of a fun tidbit to. Uh, Wait, sorry. he played he played who in Psycho? Uh, Sam Loomis. The uh, he comes in during the second half with uh, Marion's sister. And they're trying to investigate what happened to her. I guess we see him early on too in the hotel. He was the one who was sleeping with uh, the lead. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And who did he play in Spartacus? Uh, he played uh, Julius Caesar. Oh. Uh, oh, okay. I'm looking at his promotional shot. I totally see it now. Yeah, it's good for him. You know, he's in the good agent. Got these two very memorable uh, roles at the start of the new era. Not sure what happened to him afterwards, but... <laughs> but that's about all I had for this one. It's really happy uh, revisiting that book and revisiting this movie. It'll always be... Uh, even if it's not one of Kubrick's greats, I still think it's a great piece of Hollywood history. And I always enjoy coming back to it. Um, Looks like everything he did post-psycho, post-1960. Well, not everything, but almost everything was television. Mm. Yeah, I guess they just decided his career was going somewhere else. But Tons of television. <laughs> and some of his last things were uh, The Love Boat in 77, and his very final credit was multiple appearances on Fantasy Island from 1978 through 1981. <laughs> last thing I wanted to say. Yeah, uh, so on Rotten Tomatoes is 93 with the critics, 87% with the audience. 
Let's see, the little it's a very short blurb. Featuring terrific performances and epic action, Kubrick's restored Swords and Sandals epic is a true classic. Um, but I brought this up on the last uh, Best Picture podcast we recorded because Rotten Tomatoes has this, like, if you like Spartacus, you might also like. And some of the examples are strange. And um, that's why I, now I'm trying to like to bring this up. So if you like Spartacus, okay, some of the following will make sense and some will be head turners, head scratchers. Um, you might also like Last of the Mohicans. Okay. Um, A Bridge Too Far. Never seen it. Yeah, I don't know that one. Hmm. Gattaca with Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> is that because Gattaca has similar letters to Spartacus? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Ben-Hur. Okay, get it. Ooh. And then Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh, it's like, I guess 60s as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. About I that don't one. know. It's a funny algorithm. I, I, I've just been paying attention to this more because this is a weird feature that they have on their website. But anyway, yeah. And that's Spartacus. <laughs> and I know you have your closing statement, but it's it's just going to be a hell of a ride from here on, on this retrospective. Yeah. yeah, very excited to get to the stuff that's coming. Absolutely. This this whole 50s era, there's definitely some, some cool stuff, but I'm much more excited to get to his 60s and 70s outings. So, <laughs> And I have no idea. This will be way old news by the time this hits some feet somewhere. But at time of recording, we're like within a month or less of uh, The Killing and Killer's Kiss coming out in 4K. And I am definitely going to pick them up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, when they were first available for pre-sale, I think both were going for like 30 or $40. But those are like those imaginary made-up pre-sale prices. I want to say one of them was going mm-hmm. for $15 now. And it hasn't even come out yet. Uh, so oh, wow. I can't wait to check those suckers out. Uh, and if you're afraid, by the way, on Spartacus, because Sean was like, I don't know if I want the 4K version. I think Sean has famously not seen Spartacus ever either, but he was saying to me, oh, wow. yeah, he was saying to me, like, I don't know if I want the 4K version because there is a criteria, Criterion version that exists. Um, but if you're afraid, uh, don't be afraid because actually, I guess many of those Criterion extras actually transferred over to the 4K, so you won't be missing out. And you will definitely getting oh, cool. the premium picture if you get the 4K version. There's no question about that. So, yeah. Yep. Looks fantastic. And uh, can't wait to do uh, Lita. I think Lita's the next one, right? Uh, should be. Yeah. And I freaking love that movie. I've been wanting to talk about that on a podcast for ages now. Yeah, and this will be only my second viewing for Lolita. I've only seen that one once before. So I'm excited to go back. Absolutely. Yeah, I believe I might try to seek out the Jeremy Irons version from the 90s, just for the heck of it. I've always wanted to watch it. Oh. I know it's not really, doesn't really have a reputation. It's not necessarily notable. But I believe, mm. because it doesn't have to deal with the Hayes Code, it, it's more close to the original novel is what I hear. But uh, I don't know. I might try to look for that one. Because it's not hard. It's not easy to get um, on disc. I might have to import it, but... I'll look for it. Mm. 
And I'll say I, uh, <laughs> I actually tried to read the novel in prep for this. I started reading it maybe a month or so ago. And I got like maybe like 50 to between 50 and 70 pages. And I was just like, this isn't for me. This is, <laughs> I was just completely bored. <laughs> so bored and grossed out. It was, it was a very uncomfortable uncom read. Every page I'd be like, ooh, like this is making me twitch a little. So, <laughs> but anyway, I guess we'll, we'll discuss that more when we get to the podcast. But, but thanks again for coming on and uh, we'll see you all in the next one. Peace. Peace.